Thanks, James. That was great. Um, should probably stop there. Um, so, <clears throat> what to do here? I, so, how much time do we have? We have until when are people going to leave? I think we have until two o'clock. Till two o'clock. Okay. So, w- w- what I'd like to do is sort of paint a picture of some recent Supreme Court cases and how they fit within the broader narrative of environmental law and then uh, make sure we save time for your questions because those will be the important part of the event. So I'm going to just go for a while here uh, and stop with 20 minutes at least left, okay? And if you have a question while I'm talking or a comment while I'm talking, feel free to raise your hand and we can engage then. That's fun for me. It's actually more fun for me to talk to you than to just say what I already know that I'm going to say, more or less, uh, which is not surprising. There's nothing interesting for me in that particularly, but I'll try to make it interesting for you. So the cases that I'm going to talk about I've listed here, Michigan VPA, EPA v. EME Homer, and Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA, are three recent cases decided in 2014 and 2015 by the Supreme Court. And I've selected these. There's some other cases I could talk about, but I've selected these because they are interesting stories in themselves, but they also represent, each of them, a chapter in a longer narrative that the court is creating through a series of cases on major themes of environmental law. You don't think of the court as primarily concerned about environmental law, and it's not. It has a lot of other things going on. But over time, it's developed decisions on basic issues in environmental law that begin to create a narrative and have an important role in shaping environmental law as it develops uh, in the administrative and enforcement areas. So the first case, Michigan v. EPA, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be broad brush here. I'm not gonna get into a lot of detail on individual cases because the idea is to give a, a broader picture about these cases. But we can drill down if you want to on any particular case. Michigan v. EPA is about whether EPA is required to consider costs in setting environmental policy, and this has been a big issue throughout the history of environmental law and its interpretation by the courts and by the agencies. And in particular, whether EPA can or should engage in cost-benefit balancing in determining the right policy to pursue. This issue came up uh, early in, in in the game with American Trucking Associations, the EPA, which decided in 2001 now 15 years ago. And in that case, the court held that EPA was not only not required, but was not, to per- was not permitted to consider costs in setting national ambient air quality standards under the Clean Air Act. The statutory standard was that EPA had to set national ambient air quality standards requisite to protect the public health And the court said there was no ambiguity in that language, 
and that EPA was was prohibited from considering costs and directed only to consider the health impacts of various levels of pollution in establishing the standards. It was thought after that decision that maybe the court had established a kind of presumption against consideration of costs under these environmental statutes where where Congress had left the question open. It was a kind of a presumption that in the absence of a specific legislative directive to the contrary, EPA was not permitted to consider costs. Then move on to Entergy Corporation v. Riverkeeper, decided eight years later, and you get a quite different picture on this issue. In this case, the court upheld EPA's cost-benefit balance approach to setting controls on um, cooling tower intake structures in electric utility plants. And there, the court, this was a decision by Justice Scalia, who also wrote the decision in uh, the opinion for the court in American Trucking Associations. There, the court said that the statutory language setting the uh, level of control as best technology available did not preclude the consideration of costs and indeed encompassed the kind of cost-benefit balancing approach that EPA had taken. So after this case, it became clear that the idea that the court had created some presumption against consideration of costs where the statute was ambiguous or open on the question, that presumption did not exist. In fact, maybe the court was moving to a quite different presumption. And the idea that the court was moving to a quite different presumption really gets has, has its completion in Michigan v. EPA. Again, a quite different kind of case, but the same theme. You can see the court developing this theme, what to do with costs, how to interpret statutes on this question of costs. And you see this process continued in Michigan v. EPA, where the question was whether EPA had properly interpreted a threshold determination for whether to regulate hazardous air emissions from electric utility plants. The statute says that before EPA can regulate hazardous air pollutants emitted by utility plants, it has to determine that such regulation is appropriate and necessary. And if it makes that determination in the affirmative, then it can go ahead and set emission standards for hazardous air pollutants, in this case mercury emissions, from these plants. Well, what EPA did in this case is make the threshold determination regulation was appropriate and necessary, and set the hazardous air pollutant emission standard at the same time, in the same rulemaking. But it approached each of those decisions in quite different ways. On the question, on the threshold question, EPA did not consider costs. It thought it was only appropriate to consider the health impacts of hazardous air emissions from these plants. 
And then in the setting of the actual standards, it did consider costs, right? That came for review before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court invalidated EPA's rule, saying that EPA had erred in failing to consider costs on the threshold question of appropriate and necessary. And the reasoning was, that's unreasonable. If you know Chevron, right? Chevron says, if Congress has spoken to an issue, that's the end of it. But if Congress is silent or ambiguous on an issue in in legislation authorizing agency decision, the, the agency's interpretation gets deference from the court, if it's reasonable. Here, appropriate and necessary is ambiguous on the question of whether to consider costs. It doesn't say one way or another. But the court's analysis was that it was unreasonable in light of that ambiguity for the agency to select a reading that excluded consideration of costs, right? Well, that was pretty astounding, particularly since EPA had considered costs in actually setting the standards and set those standards at a level consistent with a reasonable, um, economically feasible approach. That decision was a 5-4 decision, right? What's even more astounding about that decision to me is not only did the majority take the view that costs were necessary to be considered in a reasonable interpretation of the statute, so did the minority. So Justice Kagan's dissent from the majority's decision didn't argue that costs did not need to be taken into account in making these determinations. She simply argued that EPA did take costs into account and therefore made no sense to invalidate the rule simply because EPA had considered costs at one point in its decision process rather rather than another or failed to do so. Um, And she wrote, this is dissent. Accounting for costs is particularly important in an age of limited resources. But absent a contrary indication from Congress, an agency must take costs into account in some manner before imposing significant regulatory burdens. Well, that's a huge, that's a huge leap from that early case, American Trucking Associations, that I talked about. And it seems that the court now, to a person, has the view that rationality is associated with consideration of costs and perhaps with some sort of rough cost-benefit analysis. So unless Congress has said specifically to the contrary, don't consider costs or don't balance costs and benefits, the court seems predisposed to indulge the presumption that some consideration of costs, some balancing of costs and benefits is appropriate. So you can see how one particular case stands on its own, but it also rounds out uh, an evolution in the, on the court on this important issue. Um, so on a similar, in a similar vein, EME Homer, this was a case involving the validity of EPA's use of a regional trading program to deal with interstate emissions of oxides of nitrogen and sulfur dioxide, right? One of the problems, the main problems of implementing the Clean Air Act 
through the state implementation plan process has been that a lot of pollutants don't stay within state boundaries, so they can't be effectively regulated by individual state programs. There's a trans, major transboundary effect from these pollutants. So under the, under the Clean Air Act's good neighbor provisions, EPA has developed approaches, regional approaches, to try to deal with these emissions. And in particular, in the rule that was the subject of litigation in EMA Homer, EPA had basically created a, a regional trading scheme whereby individual states were invited to join in a joint effort to deal with these pollutants and where sources within these states were allowed to trade among each other in order to approximate the least cost allocation of reduction to achieve the goals that EPA thought were necessary. That came for review before the Supreme Court, and in EME Homer, the court upheld it. And it upheld it notwithstanding language in the statute that seemed to suggest that EPA could only consider amounts of pollutants in determining whether states were violating the good neighbor provisions and could not consider costs and particularly comparative costs of reduction in making that uh, allocation. And the basic premise of the court was, this makes a lot of sense, right? This is an efficient, cost-effective, equitable way of dealing with a major environmental problem. And that is, that, is a, that is a sort of a last chapter, or the most recent chapter, in a narrative involving other court decisions going all the way back to Chevron, where the court has been very receptive to these flexibility mechanisms that EPA has devised to try to give sources that are required to reduce pollution more flexibility, and particular, in particular, to encourage trading such that the lowest cost avoiders are the ones that do the reduction, and those for whom reductions are more expensive are allowed to trade off uh, their obligations through some sort of allowance system. So an, an, another example of, of a case being a chapter in a, in a story involving the use of cost-effective flexibility techniques in the implementation of major statutory provisions like, like the good neighbor provisions of the Clean Air Act. And then finally, and this is the last chapter in the last story that I'll talk about, uh, is, is Utility Air Regulatory Group, the EPA. And this is a story, this is the, a chapter in a story that's much... Um, well, it's different from the others because it's not a general theme. It is a particular area of concern, and that is climate change, right? And the, the contribution of greenhouse gas emissions, domestic greenhouse gas emissions, to global climate change. And this is a story that was begun, as James pointed out in, in his early remarks, this is a story that was begun with the Supreme Court's decision in Massachusetts v. EPA, where the court said, 
air pollutant, which is the jurisdictional linchpin of the Clean Air Act, has a definition capacious enough to include greenhouse gases. Question about whether greenhouse gases were an air pollutant. They're not the normal kind of air pollutant, which affects people in, uh, in close proximity to a source. They're a pollutant that works indirectly through the climate system to affect everyone globally. Notwithstanding that distinction, the court said greenhouse gases fit the broad definition of air pollutant under the Clean Air Act, and specifically for purposes of automobile emissions under Title II of the Clean Air Act, EPA is required to determine whether those emissions endanger human health and the environment, and if they do, to enact automobile emission standards for greenhouse gas emissions under Section 202. That was a 5-4 decision. Justice Scalia dissented. Uh, that's important because he, he, he becomes the author of the opinion and utility area regulatory group. EPA ultimately implemented the decision by making an endangerment finding for greenhouse gases related to global warming and its effects. And then it adopted automobile emission standards so that the automobiles that you buy today and drive are subject to automobile emission standards. Average standards for different classes and types of automobiles that limit greenhouse gas emissions per mile for, per vehicle mile traveled. So already that's in effect. The legal effect of that decision and EPA's implementation of it through the automobile emission standards was to make greenhouse gas emissions, not just an air pollutant, but an air pollutant regulated under the Act, which then has certain consequences for the application of other provisions under the Clean Air Act, particularly the provisions relating to the prevention of significant deterioration, which provisions apply to stationary sources to require them to get pre-construction permits if they emit major amounts of certain pollutants, and also uh, requires them, if they are subject to the requirement of a pre-construction permit, to apply best available control technology for all units that emit pollutants, air pollutants, that are subject to regulation under the Act. So EPA said, we have, to, we have to include greenhouse gas emissions in the PSD program because they're air pollutants. We know that now. That's what Massachusetts EPA said. And now, since we did the automobile uh, emissions um, standards, they're air pollutants subject to regulation under the Act. So EPA made a rule that brought greenhouse gas emissions into this broad prevention of significant deterioration program focused on new sources, major new sources, and major modifications. The difficulty that EPA faced in doing that is that the threshold amounts for the application of the PSD program to stationary sources were expressed in the statute as specific tons per year amounts. 
And the threshold stated in the statute were 100 or 250 tons per year, depending on which kind of source it was. In coming to include greenhouse gas emissions in that program, EPA had to confront the reality that greenhouse gas emissions are much greater in volume, typically, than emissions of conventional pollutants that were regulated under these provisions. So the, if, if, if EPA had applied those statutory thresholds, 100 tons per year or 250 tons per year, literally, in the case of greenhouse gas emissions, there would have been thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of new facilities that would be governed, more than EPA could reasonably believe it was able to do. So EPA felt it had to do something, felt it had to regulate these emissions under these provisions, but in order to make that administratively feasible, it had to somehow change the threshold. So it did that. It issued the tailoring rule, which basically changed the statutory thresholds to make them much larger for purposes of application to the greenhouse gas emissions. So instead of 100 tons per year, it was 100,000 tons per year, several orders of magnitude larger. That went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in a decision by Justice Scalia, again, a 5-4 vote, said, wrong. And you can see the problem. I mean, everybody knew there was a problem going in. When the agency adopts numerical thresholds that are contradictory to statutory thresholds, there's a lot of explaining to do, and EPA was ready to do the explaining. But what's surprising about Scalia's approach is that his, his, he didn't say, EPA, you're required to apply these provisions to greenhouse gas emissions just as they're applied to other provisions using these stated statutory thresholds. He agreed that that wouldn't make sense. But the conclusion he drew from that was that EPA had improperly defined air pollutant for purposes of the applicability of these prevention of significant deterioration regulations to include greenhouse gas emissions. And he didn't do that by saying Massachusetts v. EPA was wrongly decided. He just said, well, air pollutant sometimes means to include greenhouse gas emissions, and sometimes not. Sort of, you know, depends on the statutory context. And in this case, it can't be read, air pollutant can't be read to include greenhouse gas emissions because look at the silly result. You bring in thousands, tens of thousands, millions of new facilities, and that clearly can't be what Congress intended. And EPA was stupid to even think that that was possible. So you suddenly get this, this world in which air pollutant sometimes means greenhouse gas emissions, or includes them, and sometimes doesn't, depending. Depending on what? Depending on whether the result is feasible, workable, makes sense. And in the course of coming to this conclusion, Justice Scalia, who nominally had acquiesced in Massachusetts v. EPA, makes the following comment. He says, EPA's greenhouse gas inclusive interpretation of the PSD triggers would place 
plainly excessive demands on limited governmental resources. That was clear. EPA said that, right, as a rationale for its own approach. But he says there's another reason why EPA's approach is unreasonable. That is the approach of defining greenhouse gases as part of air pollutants for purposes of these provisions. EPA's interpretation is also unreasonable because it would bring about an enormous and transformative expansion in EPA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization. When an agency, this is just at his rhetorical height, when an agency claims to discover in a long extant statute an unheralded power to regulate a significant portion of the American economy, we typically greet its announcement with a measure of skepticism. Somewhat understated. Um, so what Scalia is saying here is there's a specific point about the tailoring rule and the PSD regulations. But he seems to be, or in the interpretation of many, seems to be delivering a broader message, which is that in implementing Massachusetts VPA, EPA is going to be carefully watched by the court where the implementation of existing Clean Air Act provisions with respect to greenhouse gas emissions does what he says here, um, regulates a significant portion of the American economy not previously brought under regulation. So you can see this as a kind of shot across the bow to EPA on future climate change regulation under the Clean Air Act, notwithstanding the apparent support for that, warrant for that in Massachusetts v. EPA. You know, one, might, one might say, well, what did Massachusetts v. EPA contemplate but a significant expansion of agency authority to deal with all the sources of greenhouse gas emissions, which are many, you, me, the rest of the nation, basically. Um, what, did, what did Massachusetts mean? But, you know, this is classic. This is wonderful. This is interesting. Scalia nominally acquiescing in Massachusetts VEPA is finding ways to kind of cut back on it and limit its impact. Um, and the question is, how, how likely is the court to do that in future cases? This was a 5-4 decision. Justice Scalia is no longer on the court. The court's now 4-4. If you take this constellation, what does that mean? There's a case coming along right now, a very important case, involving another climate change regulation adopted by EPA under the Clean Air Act, the Clean Power Plan. That's coming up for review before the D.C. Circuit. Argument was held. That will be decided by the D.C. Circuit. It will go up to the Supreme Court, which may take certiorari. What's the Supreme Court going to do with it? Um, the Supreme Court stayed that rule in a quite amazing action, even before it was decided by the D.C. Circuit and after the D.C. Circuit itself refused to stay the rule. Um, but, of course, Scalia was on the court when the court stayed the rule 5-4. So it's unclear what the court would do. It's unclear what this language now might mean but it's certainly a warning signal that the court is going to be skeptical, critical, and perhaps antagonistic 
to further implementation of climate change policy under the existing Clean Air Act. And that's a story, that's a chapter in a, in a story that's going to continue. You should watch that space because I think it's going to be a lengthy story unless Congress actually adopts comprehensive climate change legislation and you can make your own estimation of how likely that is to happen anytime soon. So I'm going to stop there with those sort of three chapters and three different narratives and talk to you about anything you want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of curious, being that uh, Justice Scalia was kind of the architect of a lot of these opinions culminating in, in you are, um, and he's no longer on the court. I wonder which justice you think might, you know, whether it end, whether they end up on the a majority or the dissent side, sort of taking up his mantle and flushing out. Well, some I, yeah, questions. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, um, he had allies in each of these cases. I mean, he was either in the majority with Justice Kennedy joining the the four that you would anticipate would typically join in a case like this. Or, uh, but so it could be, it could be, you know, it could be any one of those others. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts would be an articulate voice for this, for these points of view generally. He dissented also in Massachusetts v. EPA. So did Justice Alito. So did Justice Thomas. And Kennedy seems to be the way he always is. <laughs> so he's persuadable. I don't think he'd be the major voice. I think it would be one of the others that would become a major voice if that were to occur. Justice Scalia relished this stuff. He really did. Because this was about regulatory overreach, self-aggrandizing agencies, which is always a concern of his, and the, and the climate change mandate, the, 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 the opening that Massachusetts EPA provided, he understood unless checked, could be a, a blank check for EPA to expand regulatory authority to sources that had not previously been subject to regulation under the Clean Air Act. I mean, I don't, I mean a lot depends on the next appointee to the Supreme Court. That's, I mean, it's sad, but if I were to say what's the most important thing in this in this set of legal issues for the future, it would be a person, not a legal doctrine, or a person coming in with certain predisposition. So, what, I mean, is this the right role for the court? You can see the court's playing quite a, quite a, at least in my view, playing quite a significant role in in the evolution of basic and important themes of environmental law which are supposed to be a function of legislation and executive implementation with the court on the sidelines playing umpire. Is this the right role for the court? You feel comfortable? I mean, it's, it's, um, do you, I mean, it's got some politics in it too, as our discussion just demonstrated, right? Who the next appointee makes a big difference. Yes. When you talk about cost and benefit, mm -hmm. it implies that there's well-established rules that everyone has agreed upon as to how you assess what those costs and benefits are. And uh, 
I suggest that, that we don't have sufficient guidance from anywhere on that issue. For example, um, we now know that uh, carbon dioxide in the air affects human functioning, and one of the places that it has large effects, for example, is a crowded classroom. <laughs> where well, I'm glad there are not too many people here today. <laughs> where um, uh, the uh, parts per million can be uh, up in the thousand or above, and that this this does have health impacts um, that I don't think have been yet uh, uh, put into any any of the cost-benefit analysis that we've seen so far? Well, I think that, so cost-benefit analysis is a methodology for um, trying to find a welfare-maximizing outcome with respect to any policy issue. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget requires it for all significant rules produced by the executive branch unless it's specifically prohibited by law. So, there's a, so there is an established requirement and a methodology associated with it uh, that works through the regulatory process. So even in cases where EPA adopts a rule, for example, a national ambient air quality standard, for which it's prohibited from considering costs, it produces a cost-benefit analysis under the OMB requirements which is made public along with the proposed rule and considered by somebody, but not by the administrator of EPA who has to make a cost-blind decision. That's rational, right? <laughs> but it's just to show how pervasive and, and uh, sticky this OMB requirement is. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether, the, about whether the methodology is capable of doing what it supposes to do, which is to find out what's in our collective best interest. Um, and there are a lot of methodologi methodological problems associated with it, but the, but the technique itself is pretty well established. And the question always is, do the environmental laws allow that approach to be taken, even if OMB requires the impacts, the, the cost-benefit analysis to be done, can agencies actually internalize that as part of their decision, or does it just get left out there as some sort of um, <coughs> public accounting, if you will, for the, for the pros and cons of the regulation. Other thoughts, questions? Everybody good? Yeah, oh, Matt? So I, wanna, I think you just answered it, but I was curious if Michigan versus EPA overturned American trucking, but it sounds like it didn't. No, it did. So, so it confined American trucking strictly so to its facts. Yeah, that's what's happened that. to American trucking. When American trucking was decided, Justice Breyer, who's a big fan of cost-benefit analysis, was very concerned that it did create a presumption that where Congress hadn't directly spoken to the issue, costs couldn't be considered and couldn't be balanced with benefits in determining a policy. And he wrote a concurring opinion which said, if we don't consider costs, we're going to go back to the Stone Age, basically, because we're going to be regulating too heavily and not getting enough benefits for our regulation compared to the burdens of it. But Scalia, I think, realized, he wrote the opinion in American Trucking Association. I, real, I think he realized the implications of it as he went along. So he has limited it to its specifics. 
He said that's only that's only the Clean Air Act Section 109. Nothing else. Yes. Well, they're supposed to, but the question, so there is now what's called a social cost of carbon, which is established by an interagency, United States Interagency Committee of Economists, that purports to represent the social cost of carbon, or you could put it in another way, the marginal benefit of a, of a marginal reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, right? And that, I don't know what it says, $40 a ton or something like that now. And it goes up over time because, because the marginal cost of each additional greenhouse, each additional unit of greenhouse gas is emitted, the marginal cost goes up because the effects become more exaggerated over time, the effects attributable to that additional ton. Um, but there's a lot of debate about whether that's valid what it, it doesn't include everything because they haven't figured out how to quantify everything or they don't know. And, um, and there are a lot of attacks from both the, the pro-climate change people, it's too small, and the anti-climate change people, it's too big. So it, I don't think it's settled anything, but at least it's a number that can be fed into this cost-benefit process for OMB. I think, I mean, there's some people who say that's the future. You're not going to convince that only with a kind of a hard-nosed economic analysis are you going to convince anyone other than the strong pro-environmentalists that climate change regulation is warranted. And the idea is that if you have a good cost-benefit analysis that you can defend, you'll be able to convince more neutral observers uh, that climate change regulation is in our collective self-interest and we will be better off with it than without it. But I think that's a bet. Yeah. You know, I don't know. What do folks think? I mean, is that is this just a harebrained scheme, this cost-benefit analysis, or is this something? I mean, it, it, traditionally, this cost-benefit analysis has been a litmus test. If you were an environmentalist, you didn't like cost-benefit analysis. Why? Because, at least was the, this was the allegation, it, wasn't, it didn't quantify the things you cared about. So, for example, in the energy case that we talked about, that the cooling water intake structures are an environmental concern not because they pollute, but because they impinge aquatic life in the mesh that is used to sane the water before it goes into the, into the... Well, they kill a lot. They kill billions of aquatic animals, small animals that you wouldn't necessarily see or notice in the water, um, billions of them, almost all of them of no, no, uh, no commercial value. And the question there was, the, the, the companies could tell you how much the, the requirements would cost them to implement 
And on the other side of the equation, what was there? Well, there were a few commercial uh, species that were affected. There could be a dollar value for that. Some recreational species, a dollar value attributable to the time and money that people spent to go try to catch them. But for the vast majority of those dying animals, there was no way of quantifying so that you had a big cost to the companies and a little cost, apparently, to the aquatic community from the regulation, along with an unquantified, vast unquantified effect. An environmentalist said, look, this is just a, this is a case, you know, a, a, a classic case example of what cost-benefit analysis can't provide, which is a, which is a, a number for, for life, <laughs> for life that doesn't happen to be instrumental to some human interest. That's just life. Um, I think that's pretty persuasive. I mean, OMB says, well, you, you can say that there are lots of animals that you can't quantify and make that part of the cost-benefit analysis, but psychologically, you know, does this unquantified sort of qualitative value measure up to a large quantified number on the other side, on the cost side? Hard to know. Yeah, Jim. Um, so perhaps... A statute that is sort of outlying and that ex- it explicitly precludes a lot of cost consideration is the Endangered Species Act. Right. Um, and I just wonder, like, what has the Supreme Court had anything to say about cost considerations in the Endangered Species Act since, like, maybe TVA v. Hill? No, not recently. Not recently. Um, I mean, the Endangered Species Act is is. I mean, that's a good example. That's sort of, I would put that in the train of costs and early sort of the statute prohibits, prohibits costs considerations. That's even pre-American Trucking Association. TVA v. Hill was a snail darter case. The court decided that that a dam should be stopped because it threatened the continued existence and the critical habitat of an endangered species of fish of known, no known economic value. And the court said, basically, we don't like it, but the statute says cost can't, shouldn't be a consideration. That's another example of those, that early strain of cases, but there hasn't been one recently. Um, and, the, you know, the, the Endangered Species Act provides other venues for consideration of costs through uh, incidental take permits and other things like that. I mean, maybe the issue's done. Maybe Michigan v. EPA basically said, forget it, environmentalists. You know, we're going, we're, we're, we presume that the reasonable approach to these issues is the consideration of costs and benefits together so that we don't overdo it uh, and take ourselves back to the Stone Age as Justice Breyer hypothesized. Other thoughts, questions? Yes? Does the prospect of Judge Garland being put on the Supreme Court give you cautious hope or yeah, cautious hope, hope would be. I mean, I have ha- a cautious hope that he might get on the Supreme Court. I think, <laughs> I think he's. I mean, he's not. Um, his record on the D.C. Circuit, and I haven't done this research myself, but from others who have done it, seems to be 
a, a generally supportive of agency determinations and not antagonistic to regulation that he believes is sensible and appropriate, um, which I think is not necessarily what you get. And if you know, there are other judges who who perhaps would be more receptive to federal regulation, but many other judges that would be more ideologically disposed to resist agency regulation, particularly as in the case of greenhouse gas emissions, it represented an expansion of agency authority, or at least the scope of agency authority. Yeah, so I would be, I would be happy to have him. I think he's a well-qualified candidate. You, you know, his chances of getting on, I, I have no idea. I mean, we won't for five weeks. <laughs> and perhaps not even then. Yeah. Do you think so, it would make that much of a difference in terms of, like, the court's willingness to go after review agency decisions? I mean, in the Clean Water Act, non-rulemaking context, we just had an exit decision saying we get to review. Oh, yeah, that's Zero right. Two, not agency action. Yeah. I like those. Those decisions are interesting because they, the, the usual divide doesn't show up there. I think the court's looking at that as due process type issues. It's not about the substance. It's about whether people get their day in court appropriately. These are, these are decisions where the question was whether uh, someone who might be subject to a requirement of a dredge and fill per- permit under the Clean Water Act has the ability before an enfor- a formal enforcement action is taken, has the ability to go in and contest EPA or the Corps of Engineers' determination that um, their wetland is, in fact, a jurisdictional wetland that is a water of the United States that's subject to the requirements of the Act. So the court has said where, you know, where the court makes a jurisdictional determination, even though it hasn't brought a, an enforcement action based on that determination, the landowner can go in and get judicial review. And the court is unanimous. I think those are, those are unanimous. That's a unanimous decision. And the court's saying, look, this is due process. You're, you're subject to obligations through this jurisdictional determination. You're entitled to go in and, and get re- This is final agency action for purposes of the APA. I don't find that to be a big deal one way or the other. I mean, I think it's, I think it's perfectly understandable um, in sort of a due, in a due process world. All right, so everything's good. We'll hold our breath for five weeks and see what happens. Thanks. Appreciate it.